Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. I assumed Rick was right about this. I don't know why. <laughs> why would you do that? <laughs> In my brain, I was like, that makes sense. Why would he make that up? And he did. He did. everybody, and welcome back to Monster Donut, a literary and historical deep dive into the Percy Jackson series and all of its following spin-offs. I'm Phoebe, a dramaturg and story consultant. And I'm Emily, a ancient mystery cult enthusiast and classic scholar. <laughs> That's a good one for this one. Yes. Rick really got into the cults. I'm, I'm, having, I'm having a good time. <laughs> it's great. <laughs> and this week, we are going to talk about The Mark of Athena. Which, um, I'm just going to put my cards out on the table here. We had a dinner with a few other Percy Jackson podcasters. And I, at one point during this dinner, said that this was my least favorite of the Percy Jackson books. And everybody, like, it was like a record scratch. And after reading this book, again, I stand by what I said. (laughs) (laughs) Which apparently is controversial. I didn't know I had a hot take, Phoebe. I feel like Mark of Athena is when the fandom really blew up like online so that might be a part of it and it also had such a like yeah the ending was so crazy that people when they think of mark Bathina are like only thinking of how good the ending was i mean it's a great ending and i will say there are definitely like really fun moments in this book there are some moments that i very much enjoy anyway do you have anything you want to we, we need to talk about before we dive in this episode is going to be edited by emily so if it feels different that's why <laughs> If you're like, oh, weird, there's way more classic stuff in this one. 
if you're like wow phoebe didn't talk at all it's not my fault <laughs> wow we i i thought emily usually doesn't rant for this long no i do actually i rant for way longer phoebe takes pity on you and cuts it down she sent me a photo of our son of neptune episode there's a pure, there's a point where i talk for literally 40 minutes straight you're welcome everybody <laughs> <laughs> It was all interesting. <laughs> so, like, you say that, but, like... Okay. Let's just get into it. Let's talk about this book. One of my biggest thoughts throughout reading Mark of Athena again was that, like, we, we've talked a little bit about how typically book three of these series have some kind of tone shift. And for a really long time, as I was reading Mark of Athena, there was something bugging me that I couldn't quite put my finger on when I realized about two-thirds of the way through that I felt like there hadn't really been a tone shift. But I was trying to remember if this is, like, the only time we have a Percy Jackson book that literally picks up right where the last one left off, at least up until this point. Yeah. Which, coming back to this now and thinking about it, I'm wondering if that is sort of a more subtle tone shift, because that is a kind of, it's a, it's a different start, sort of like we saw in Titan's Curse, to, like, what we've seen before. It's just that this time, instead of skipping way ahead and changing seasons for throwing us off balance by just immediately, like, putting us everyone right back where they started, right back where they ended before. I was thinking about that a lot, too, because it's the third book, and I made the bold claim that the third book in every series was a tone shift. And so I was watching for it in this one. And I feel like there's an obvious one at the very end. Mm -hmm. But I was like, it's got to be, there's got to be something in the whole book. Yeah, I feel like there is a tone shift in this book. It's just not the typical one where like usually it gets a lot darker. I think we start to see that a little bit in this one, but only at the very end. Just the fact that they're journeying to a totally different country when we've we've spent all this time in America is its own kind of tone shift. And the fact that we are now handling seven characters yeah. who are all trying to navigate their relationships with each other, that feels different. Yeah. There's just so much that needs to be reconciled and it's very messy. And I feel like that is also something that changed that like the status quo does change in that way. This book does open. I realized this um, a few lines into this chapter because we open on Annabeth's POV. It like really walloped me in a good way. Um, and I realized it's because Annabeth's point of view is the first POV we have gotten in this series where it's a character we've known from the beginning who's not Percy. Mm hmm. And we get to finally be in her head a little bit and yeah. see how she thinks. It felt like, exactly like you said, it felt like, finally. And I loved being in her head because it made sense to me, her as a character, the way she thinks. And yet it was so different than, I think, the way she presents herself. There's just so much more of her. Mm -hmm. You like actually are getting her uncertainty and her thought processes. I also noted that you can see her watching the people around her and like trying to piece everything together that she's seeing because she's very she's very concerned with all of the relationship dynamics going on around her, <laughs> her first couple chapters well she even says like reading people kind of became a coping mechanism of hers which i was that was really interesting yeah it's fun to be in her perspective and watch her try to gather as much information as she can about the world around her and like watch her make deductions and assumptions so we land in camp there's also the utterly iconic scene of Annabeth running up to Percy, kissing him, and then Judo throwing him. Yeah. Which, like, rereading it, I was like, no wonder 
people are afraid of Annabeth when she shows up and like don't trust the Greeks because it's like <laughs> here's Percy who they've all come to love and trust and then this this girl lands on a on a Greek ship and then comes over and like d- apparently tries to kill him like no wonder they were on edge she really should have thought that through not a good move Mm-mm. well I mean it was a pretty sweet move I I support it I don't I think she shouldn't have done it I don't. <laughs> Um, so they land, they land in Camp Jupiter. There's some tension, but everything seems to be going okay. And Annabeth and Reyna actually have, to me, what was, I thought was a really fun conversation. Mm-hmm. Because they talk a little bit about specifically the Roman attitudes towards Athena or the Roman name for her, Minerva. Because apparently, as Reyna kind of explains to her, uh, Minerva is not a goddess of war, but just like a goddess of craft. And something that's really interesting about Athena specifically is that um, a lot of people think that she originally was a patron goddess of the indigenous peoples of the area around Athens, which is called Attica. And there's a theory that her name etymologically kind of traces back to this word Atana, which is actually the name of the indigenous name of like the rock of the Acropolis. But it's kind of fun because in mythology, you know, there's this whole story about how Athens, the city is named after Athena when it seems like the reality is actually the reverse, which I always thought was kind of really cool. The the, the reason why I like this scene a lot between Reyna and Annabeth is, aside from the fact that I love both of these characters, Bologna is such a uniquely... Athena, in a way, is a very uniquely Greek goddess, even though she has a Roman aspect. And in that way, Bologna also, to me, is a very uniquely Roman goddess. And again, she comes from, probably we think, a Sabine goddess, which would have been an indigenous Italian goddess. So I kind of liked the duality of these two characters whose mothers are both very on the one side, very, very Greek coming from an indigenous, like, Greek place and very, very Roman coming from an indigenous, like, Roman hill. Like, I just enjoy (laughs) the two of them discussing the origins of their mothers and coming to this understanding when it's, like, very much two sides of this sort of same thing. And they kind of balance Mm. each other in that way to me. Yeah. I really liked this conversation, mainly from Reyna's point of view Mm. because of how quickly... Reyna wants to trust Annabeth and like mm-hmm. wants her close because like everyone else she's trying to she like immediately distrusts and wants to keep at a distance and like when Percy showed up she doesn't trust that easily she's trying to protect her home but Annabeth there's like an immediate kinship with and they also like have that immediate connection because unlike Percy Annabeth immediately remembers Reyna mm. and like she's already sort of gotten past blaming Percy for what happened, but at least she gets the acknowledgement from Annabeth that that happened. Mm. I think in this conversation as well, I also started tracking a little bit because remember how last episode I went on a whole rant about how wrong Rick was about the Romans? This book, it feels like he did a lot more research and fixed it. (laughs) He listened. So I felt like a lot of this book, I felt that shift too, where it felt a lot more like Son of Neptune was a lot about like what the Romans would want you to believe Rome was. And in this book, it's there's a lot more of like what Rome actually was. Mm-hmm. I definitely felt that. So um, it seems as though there's a tenuous peace being achieved between Greeks and Romans, that Juno's plan is working, that Percy and Jason are having a budding bromance or something, when all of a sudden <laughs> the Greek ship starts attacking the Roman camp out of nowhere. I only have two notes on this battle. I mean, that's two more than me. I have no notes on this battle. 
Who threw a brick at Jason? (laughs) (laughs) Oh my god, right. Do we have a Jason concussion count? That's one. I wrote down at some point in my notes, the real theme of this book is concussions, and I stand by it. (laughs) Everyone gets cogged on the head, especially Jason. But I was like, you know, Jason is like the hero of Camp Jupiter. And then they just, someone immediately turns on him and throws a a whole brick at his head. I'm almost positive it's got to have been Octavian. That just makes sense. I think Octavian doesn't come down yet, though, at that point, because my second note on this, so chronologically happens last, is that uh, Octavian is hanging out on the ladder and won't come down, and Percy has to climb up the ladder, so grabs Octavian and throws him into the mob, which was just really funny to me. (laughs) Okay, so it wasn't him. Maybe someone else had a grudge. Maybe maybe someone else wanted to be Praetor and just, like, was a dark horse in the running that we never... Mm. Maybe someone just really, like, you know what? He's just too perfect. You just gotta take him out. We need a spinoff about whoever threw that brick at Jason. I need a spinoff, at least a short story about what their deal is. But when they get back onto the ship, it's suddenly Leo versus everyone, especially Percy and Frank. Those two hate that little man <laughs> which i appreciate i i like that there were leo antis on this ship leo anti-representation <laughs> so we we get the ship we get the ship out and then we get the switch to leo's point of view for our first side quest because the ship has been damaged so we need to stop to get some materials um they disembark percy and animeth go on an adventure to go get some tar leo disembarks with hazel just Hazel? Where's Frank? Um, Frank goes with Percy and Annabeth. Right. Uh, Hazel and Leo go on this side quest, and then Piper stays behind with Jason because he oh, yeah, he got he got conked on the head. Looks dead, according to Piper, because he can't stay alive. <laughs> How many times is Jason described as dead? Now that you like pointed it out in our in, <laughs> in our last hero episode, I just it's it keeps happening. This man is just he's like on death's door most of this series. It's constant. (laughs) (laughs) Hazel and Leo go out to go find this island in the middle of a lake where there's apparently lime and bronze, celestial bronze. And they kind of need this as well because there's some weirdness between Leo and Hazel because, as it turns out, Leo looks exactly like Hazel's old crush Sammy from her old life in the 40s. It's so unnecessary. Rereading it, I was like, there has to be a reason, right? That I'm forgetting. (laughs) I did figure out how to fold it into my kind of takeaway from this book. But it's also like, I feel like it was just, it's just here to like create romantic tension in between Frank and Hazel. But at the same time, it's such toothless tension. Especially because it doesn't feel like Hazel feels anything other than like, you look just like my ex-boyfriend for leo not like any kind of actual feelings for leo yeah and then it's leo like latching onto them and being like you pay attention to me there's one moment later on that i did think was a little interesting which was that leo after um this is skipping ahead a little bit but after hazel shares a flashback to show leo why she's so confused by his appearance and to show him Sammy and why she liked Sammy. Basically, there's a moment where Leo kind of thinks to himself that Sammy is like the better version of him, which got me thinking a little bit because I felt like in this book, the first like theme I kind of thought of as I was reading it was that there was a lot of like imposter syndrome happening. Like a lot of these, almost every single one of these characters, even the non-POV characters have at least one moment where they feel inadequate and they feel like they shouldn't be there 
and they feel like they're not doing anything to help. But also the sort of secondary thing that emerged out of that thought, that the more I thought about this book, the more I realized that actually I think this book is centered around a giant identity crisis, where I feel Mm -hmm. like every character on every level, and and, because this is the thing, right? As I mentioned, I was sort of struggling to figure out how to stitch together all these encounters. Like, what do they all have in common? Like, what are the themes we're exploring? Echo and Narcissus, which is where we're about to, the, the first major encounter of this book that we're about to have, that was sort of my tipping point because I was trying to figure out what their purpose was in the story. Because Echo and Narcissus are both characters that um, they're kind of a, they're a pair. Narcissus is, in some versions, cursed, in some versions, not cursed, just a douche, um, <laughs> is entranced by his own beauty and obsessed with it to the point that he can't look away from like his own reflection. And he's just like tied to just stare at himself. And then Echo, who's always paired with him, is this nymph who also doesn't have her own voice and can only ever like echo back. To me, that really, I feel like holding up the mirror and forcing them to kind of confront this version of themselves, that to me kind of unlocked a lot of what my thoughts are on this book as a whole. Hmm. I could see that also with um, Christ. Is it Chrysler? 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 What's his name? Chrysler. Chrysler. I was like, Chrysler? Like, <laughs> yeah, the Chrysler. The Chrysler um, building. The Chrysler building, when he and his pirates are all trying to like stick to their, their roots as pirates, but this one piece of their past, of the uh, their connection with Dionysus being the thing that still can like tear them apart, like they're stuck still with that old story. Mm-hmm. And them trying to like move past their their dolphinness because I assume that's why the Chrysler building. I forget what you just told me. <laughs> He's actually called the Chrissy Kelly. Yeah, yeah, the Chrissy Kelly. I think I like. I imagine that's why he wears that mask. I don't know if it's ever said that's why he wears the mask, but he's trying to hide his his dolphin features in my head. Mm. So he's trying to hide that part of who he is, but he can't really escape it because mm. it's part of him and his crew now. It's a part of the the gods also because this is where we start to learn really that they're having their identity crisis mm-hmm. and that like in moments you're meeting Bacchus and in moments you're meeting Mr. D and you know here's Athena who's having trouble remembering anything because she's Minerva half the time Mm. because I feel like there are so many pieces in this book that do sort of bring up this idea of like who is the best version of you Mm. another one is the Eidolons that possess because I I looked the I I was looking them up as well because they're kind of like ghosts in this version but another interpretation of the mythology is that they're doppelgangers. Mm. And I was just thinking about all of the like little potential doppelgangers that are scattered throughout. Because there's a lot more in this book. Like even the big bats at the end, the, you know, not Arachne, but the two giants are twins that are constantly like stuck in each other's orbit, trying to be different versions of the same person and yet not able to break out of that. Like, mm. We'll get to we'll talk about it in more detail, I think, as we go. But to me, that really stood out as I think the main theme of this book and why I think this book throws me off so much because I feel like everyone's having an identity crisis in this book, which is why it's sort of hard to get a handle on everybody. So we've already talked a little bit about Echo and Narcissus, but I also want to talk um, before we encounter Echo and Narcissus on this beach. We do meet finally Nemesis, the mother of Ika Nakamura. Yeah. Ethan Nakamura. I think having Nemesis as our first encounter was interesting Mm. to set up this book technically the Eidolons are like our first monster encounter but like that's inside the camp so I don't really count them (laughs) so the first the first encounter of the quest is Nemesis and so introducing the book with like 
balance and justice on one side we have the romans who are currently chasing after them to seek revenge and justice after they've destroyed their camp but also that whole concept of balance is like what the entire rome greece relationship is supposed to be in this book where it's like percy and jason were traded so that we could find a balance between the two camps Mm. the fact that she offers things through a fortune cookie was interesting to me yeah because i feel like fortune cookies marry luck and fate in an interesting way where it's like you don't know which cookie you're gonna end up with Mm. like they just grab one at random and give it to you or like you get uh, you get four with your Chinese food meal and it's like who knows which one you're gonna grab that they gave you and Mm -hmm. then once you open it at that point it's like here's your fate which you you chose (laughs) she does say one thing that I wrote down which I think plays into the theme I was just talking about in an interesting way which is she basically encounters Leo and Hazel right before they're about to meet Echo Narcissus and she kind of warns them ahead of time and part of her warning and part of her description of what lies ahead is saying, quote, most heroes cannot escape their nature even when given a second chance at life. And he meets Echo and Narcissus. I said a while scratching my head because they're, in this version, both mortals who were brought back as part of Gaia's plan. Everyone else we've seen up until this point was brought back with a purpose by Gaia. But it seems like these two just kind of slipped through. Hmm. Like, they don't have a purpose. They're not sitting here furthering the war effort. They're just, like, on a random lake doing what they've always done. Although apparently now Narcissus is a YouTuber. Right. It's all part of Gaia's plan. (laughs) Yeah, to take over streaming or something. So they get all of the ingredients they need. Percy, Annabeth, and Frank return from what looks like a pretty fun little side quest that we don't get to see any of. Yeah, I'm so mad. (laughs) (laughs) And then uh, Piper has been seeing visions in her dagger, Catoptris, and one of her visions is in Kansas. And they encounter Bacchus, who does not mm-hmm. say, I'm Bacchus, baby, which really disappointed Unbelievable. Me. I know. I can't It's like Rick's it. not even listening to us. <laughs> <laughs> I did make a couple notes on the scene, one of which was that I think it's kind of interesting how... Jason seems to have had overwhelmingly positive experiences with all of the gods. Like, I'm thinking yeah. about, like, Aeolus, like, with Bacchus. Like, they always meet him, and they're like, oh, yeah, that like, kid. Oh, that's my friend. He's great. <laughs> he did me a favor. No muss, no fuss, no questions asked. <laughs> and then it's immediately contrasted with what I think might actually be one of the most low-key funny moments in this book, which is Percy starts just immediately antagonizing Bacchus because he sees Mr. D in yeah. him. He just starts to be, like, talking back, like, arguing with him, being super rude. And as this is happening, we're in Piper's head. And Piper is just sitting there like, what are you doing? Because <laughs> <laughs> she's never seen anyone do anything like this. She's been with Leo and Jason this whole time. I know. And I just found that <laughs> so funny because it's just one of those, like, things that Percy does all of the time. But seeing it from someone else's perspective just makes it makes you realize just how crazy this kid is. Uh-huh. <laughs> Especially, co- again, contrasted with Jason right there, where it's like, oh my god, thanks for the favor. And it makes me wonder, like, should Percy have just been nice this whole time? Like, could everything have been avoided? <laughs> should he have just been nice and charming? And <laughs> <laughs> No, but I think that's just, like, 
That's just, like, not who he is, though. So it was just a fun, like, the, the, the starkest difference between Percy and Jason here. I mean, part of it might just be that Jason has always been exactly what he was supposed to be. Like, he's been the perfect hero and shows up to do what he's told. <laughs> and the gods are like, amazing. The other thing is, this is the scene that's on the cover. Yeah. My biggest thing with this moment when they both, like, you realize that they're possessed is the gold eyes. Mm. Because I remember reading this for the first time and being like, there's like a... a a response that is elicited from the reader upon reading that people have gold eyes after reading the last book series that like uh. no one in the book at that point can acknowledge because Piper's the only one who can see them like because Piper's the point of view that we're in and she has no reason to be like oh my god gold eyes it's like a deep-rooted like fear that it pulls back out because mm -hmm. it, it's like Oh, we're past that threat. And then the, he throws gold eyes back at you and you don't know what's going on. You know, when you're reading this book for the first time, you're like, oh my God, <laughs> what's happening? Yeah, so it's definitely, it like feels like such a choice, but it's one that's never acknowledged in this book. No. Like even when Annabeth sees it. Yeah. You'd think I want to be an Annabeth's perspective when she sees that because it's like, that's like horrifying to I see know. Percy's eyes turn gold. It's like that, yeah. that was the original plan. <laughs> Just like having watched Luke that everything happened to luke and then having like having the threat of it happening with percy like girl yeah and i think especially in this book when we keep calling back to luke and especially at the end start talking about like that percy's starting to understand luke and that mm -hmm. he's almost luke's age it's mm -hmm. like we're just it's i i don't know we're setting something up maybe we'll follow through <laughs> but we also in this scene i think is when we finally learn Gaia's plan, which is to use one male demigod and one female demigod as a blood sacrifice to mm -hmm. wake herself. I haven't like done a ton of research on this, but as I've been looking up a lot of other mystery cults, there is one to the mother, great mother, Mater. Roman is Mater, Greek is Mater, involving blood sacrifice to the earth or something. Maybe, maybe this is all just an elaborate cult is all I'm saying, but I'll come back to that later. Um, hmm. <laughs> we love it. We love a blood sacrifice story at times. I'd be lying if I said most of my books I've written don't involve that at some point. I I have one currently in the works. So. We love it. It's great. Bleed them dry. Anyway, um, <laughs> so they get back to the ship and Piper is able to expel the Adelons and force them to swear on the River Styx to not possess Percy, Jason, and Leo because as it turns out, they have been lurking in their little brains the whole time. Yeah. There was one moment I really enjoyed here because I like getting to see the characters observe each other's relationships, the ones that they built outside of them. So like the one I'm specifically thinking of is Annabeth seeing Percy get possessed um, at the table or like seeing Percy's, you know, eyes light up gold and everything and possessed Percy starts intimidating Hazel and she's like, oh my God, that's my boyfriend. I should get in the way and stop him from intimidating Hazel because she doesn't know Percy and Hazel's relationship and Hazel immediately like waves her off and is like do not worry I know this man but like <laughs> it's because they just spent a whole book together and Annabeth knows nothing about their relationship yet and so I just I like getting to see like Annabeth get caught up to speed on where their relationship is and like we don't get to see as much of Hazel and Frank who know Jason seeing Jason's new relationship because we're not really in their perspective mm. but that's one that I wish was focused on more <laughs> um, but you do get it a little bit with like Piper trying to get used to Jason and Raina's relationship yeah 
I mean, I we kind of get it almost ourselves when we see like there are a couple points where we get to see Annabeth's relationship that's grown with the the lost hero trio, which we didn't get to see because it all happened between the lost hero and Mark of Athena. Um, so there's like Annabeth stealing Piper's breakfast, which is apparently an inside joke between them. Yeah. Or is it Piper stealing Annabeth's breakfast or Annabeth stealing Piper's breakfast? <laughs> I think it's Piper steals Annabeth's breakfast, <laughs> but there are other moments like that where we hear just how the relationship between Annabeth and those three has grown over the past couple months as outsiders. And so I feel like that experience is sort of parallel to Annabeth getting caught up to speed on what Percy's been up to. My next two notes are just questions that we do not get the answer to that make no sense. Are they about this scene? No. Okay, because there's one last thing I want to say okay. about this scene. Which is that a little bit after it, uh, when Piper is talking to Jason, she admits that she almost let Jason kill Percy, which is just so cool of her. (laughs) She was like, actually, the easiest way out of this situation is to just let him die, which she doesn't say when we're in her point of view. So I thought that was fun because we were in her point of view for that scene and like presumably knew what her thoughts were, but we don't get Mm. them. So what you're saying is this is a great example of the times the POV is manipulated. It is, because we wouldn't have known that unless she said it out loud. For some reason, this third-person omniscient (laughs) narrator doesn't actually know anything. (laughs) I feel like that's fair, though. Like, the, the narrator keeps a lot from us. Yeah, but what I was saying, like, last time was that now that we're in third person, they can't really hide things from us, but for some- apparently Piper can. <laughs> Maybe she's a special relationship with the narrator, I don't know. Maybe She's charm-speaked her way um, into the narrator's good graces, and Percy has not figured that out yet, so the narrator will just tell you anything Percy's thinking. <laughs> we also hear a little bit more about Annabeth's quest while they're all on the ship. Because she's been, sh- we find out, I-, I forget exactly when it's like fully revealed. But I think this is the moment. We find out about what the Mark of Athena is, which is um, that Annabeth, uh, when her last visit with her mother, was charged by given a coin, a Greek silver drachma, to go to Rome and to avenge her, basically. And as it turns out, Athena is sort of at the center of this Greek and Roman feud. Because in the Rick Riordan verse, <laughs> The Romans stole this great statue called the Athena Parthenos, that was a statue of Athena that was like 40 feet tall that was in the Parthenon for a really long time until apparently the Romans sacked the city, took it with them back to Rome as a trophy and um, also as a piece of that also took Athena with them and kind of demoted her essentially from being a war goddess to just a goddess of crafts. I'm saying apparently a lot here because... (laughs) It was a good idea, Rick. It's not supported by history, but it's a good idea. (laughs) What I will say is the Athena Parthenos was mysteriously lost or disappeared approximately. When I say approximately, I mean around like 25 to possibly like 50 years or more off from a Roman sacking of Athens. So I think that's what happened here. What's interesting about the Athena Parthenos is that there's a theory that before... Athens was really on the map politically. There was a wooden idol, probably of Athena, that was like passed down and down and down and was like this pricelessly sacred and ancient idol. And in Athens's history, um, the Persians actually invaded around 500 BC or so, which predates the construction of the 
They, they are actually starting to build a Parthenon, but the Persians raided Athens and the city and, like, destroyed everything, and they a lot of the people fled to a nearby island, I believe, Salamis, and they took this idol with them because it was that important and brought it back. And there's an interesting theory that this idol is, like, still kind of embedded somewhere in some one of the buildings uh, on the Acropolis, because uh, the Parthenon is not the only building on the Acropolis. There's also the Erechtheon, so a lot of people think that was originally built to house this, like, very sacred thing. And the Athena Parthenos, I feel like in this work, kind of continues on this tradition. It's also like would have been made of wood, although it would have been much larger and been like gold plated and had all this other extra stuff on there. But I feel like that like original idol really for a really long time was the like source of Athena's symbolic and literal power. Because again, she was probably a local goddess first um, and then conflated with another Indo-European goddess at some point in Athens's history. Which is why I say that it's like this statue is kind of an amalgamation of them. Purely because there's a lot of like famous statues in ancient Greece, but I feel like there are a few of them that are seen to have been imbued with this much power. And I feel like part of that is that legacy of that original statue kind of being embedded as a cultural memory with the Athena Parthenos. So it is really cool to see it still holding that much power. Something else though that is that um, basically Raina had kind of hinted that she knew what was going on to Annabeth in their earlier conversation, but Jason basically says oh yeah, all the prieters know that we like stole this statue. But he also apparently knows about all the Athena kids going on quests for it, which, like, how did he know that? Mm-hmm. How did he know that there was an Athena to have kids? <laughs> the math isn't mathing, Rick. So we find out that that's what Annabeth's after. It's a long-lost statue of her mother that appears to have been imbued with a fair amount of her power and essence that was stolen by the Romans and subdued by the Romans long ago. Shall we move on to... Georgia. Well, we have we have a Percy dream. Okay. So Percy has a dream where he sees the giants who are, are kind of the the Dian, the anti-Dionysus. They're also in black turtlenecks when we first meet them, so I was like, of course the theater giants are in black turtlenecks. Yep. <laughs> Maybe as a theater professional, can you comment on the veracity of this? Every time I'm trying to look extra theatery, I wear my black turtleneck. Mm-hmm. Like whenever I'm trying to be taken seriously as a dramaturg, I put on my black turtleneck mm-hmm. and my glasses. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was around this time that I started formulating a thought and didn't finish it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because we've got like we've got Mr. D at the beginning or Bacchus at the beginning, and then we've got his variations, his giant variations. His Warios, yes. His Warios. But I started I was like, maybe this is the Dionysus book. Maybe I can make this the Dionysus book. And I definitely didn't finish that thought, but I was thinking a lot about theater and madness and uh, not so much being drunk, but... (laughs) There's not a lot of drunk debauchery going on. Like, there's no... I mean, unless you count the head injuries. My next note, I don't actually know where it fits in, because... It looks like just looking at my notes that th- this whole section is out of order. It's, it's just like stream of consciousness. There's a point where they're arguing over whether or not they should save Nico. And I think it comes after they have that dream or after Percy has that dream about Nico. Half of the group is arguing, well, uh, half of the group. It's really just Jason and Leo who are arguing that they shouldn't go save Nico, that they should focus on their quest and th- that they should consider the fact that Nico tried to keep things from both camps and like can we really trust this guy 
And they have this whole argument with Hazel, who's really upset with them for considering letting Nico die. And Piper gets angry at Leo and Jason and tells them that they were being cold. And Jason looks shocked and says, cold, I'm just being cautious. And I just really liked that as like a character moment for Jason, where it was like really getting to see Jason's like logic brain working, where he doesn't, it's like he didn't even understand for a moment that he was coming across as cold. He was like, I was just doing the logical thing, which is maybe we shouldn't help Nico when it's potentially not beneficial to us. (laughs) And it's true. It's like the other... Again, we've talked a lot about how very Roman Jason is, but it's very Roman to be incredibly efficient and, like, make really great strides, but to do so because you're able to completely disregard the value of human life. Like, I think that's where the Collective and the Legion thing comes from a little bit, because the Romans would basically be like, well, what's a few extra lives to achieve this other thing? Yeah, it just got me thinking how these two separate groups are trying to collaborate, but even their brains work in totally different Mm. ways. But I don't know, because it's also like, even across like Roman and Greek lines, there's like Annabeth and Jason who think in that logical way. And we hear over and over how similar Jason and Annabeth are. It comes up a lot in this book. But then you also have like Hazel, who's on the Roman side, who is like, I can't believe you're making the logical choice right now. (laughs) And Frank is standing behind her. And it's like, those are the two other Romans. But that makes sense if we're we're talking about Jason as being the perfect Roman hero, because that's what he is. Well, I think part of what defines Frank and Hazel, though, is that they're, they're not they're pretty, they're kind of outsiders. Like, they're not the most Romany Romans. No. And they're newbies. So they were told by someone, can't remember who, to go find salt water in Georgia. And when they get there, they're told that the, what you think of when you think salt water in Georgia is the aquarium. They're told to find uh, Forcus, who they assume will be inside the aquarium. So mm. Percy, Frank, and Coach Hedge <laughs> go to the aquarium. Which I was so glad to see Percy and Frank going on a little mission Mm. together. (laughs) Yeah. I was really glad to see that Monster Donut has moved on to corporate sponsorship. Yeah, look at us. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like you have to draw that for this episode. Death in the Deep Sea is sponsored by Monster Donut. Actually, that's our t-shirt. We should just make that a t-shirt. Oh, we should make that a t-shirt. I'll make that a t-shirt. It'll be up in our our non-existent merch store. (laughs) (laughs) They also are big into show business, too, uh, Forkus and yeah, Keto. Yeah, that's when I actually Keto? made that note that I was like, is this a book about theater? And then it wasn't. I mean, it was. It was. It could be about, about theater. I could make it about theater if I wanted to. You know what they should have called it? They should have called it Showboat. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> um, but this is when we get a, a closer look at Percy's new fear of yeah. suffocation. It's specifically suffocation. He... Mm-hmm. he clarifies that he's like it's not drowning it's suffocation (laughs) and the idea of being in the water reminds me of suffocating (laughs) Mm. he also at one point refers he's basically brushing it off and says it's just a stupid phobia interesting choice of words percy considering how much he absolutely beat the crap out of phobos not long ago it makes me think like what would have happened if he encountered phobos now as opposed to that at this point i was also thinking about this not because of this but because of the later the much later dream sequence Mm. where gaia shows up and shows him the camp on fire which was yeah the vision that he had in that short story so i had a similar question reading this book 
but not at this point. But we learn that Percy has a fear of suffocating and is nervous about going underwater, even though he knows he can't drown. It's a combination. He says that it's because of the mes- the muskeg incident, but I also think it's the prophecy in yeah. the last book. You know, it put that fear in the back of his mind throughout the last book, and it hasn't really left. Yeah. Well, And what's also interesting is he's been recently reminded of that a little bit, I think, through his dream where he sees Nico. Like, the idea of, like, oh, suffocating, that's the thing, where we see, like, Nico in the jar, where, like, he's kind of, like, put himself into a death trance, basically, and it's the food, but it's also, I feel like, a bit of the suffocation and the, like, just being confined and trapped like that. Yeah. And, like, he's, he starts, like, psychoanalyzing himself later on in the book and tries to figure out why he fears suffocation, specifically, which I guess we'll get to later on, but... I think there's also this realization that he starts to have in this book, or I don't know if he's realizing it, but I'm realizing it in this mm-hmm. book, that Percy is currently experiencing a change in his like panic threshold. Like he will panic much sooner now, but post what Juno did to him mm-hmm. than he used to. He used to be able to make it through things without, with, while like, you know, he was internally panicking, but it wouldn't be stopping him from anything. But then, like, in the last book, we had the moment when he sees the Cyclops and Centaurs, and he has the panic attack, and then in this book, we have him panicking just from, like, trying to make it through this this fear of suffocation that he's dealing with and, like, going th- near the water. And, like, later on, when we see that he can't control the water, it, it really freaks him out. Mm. And so I think that he's he's currently dealing with a change in how much he can handle And I don't know if he's realized that yet, but I've realized it. (laughs) That is really interesting. I want to put a pin in that. I feel like in this scene also, like, Frank has a bit of that. I think he has a... He's not as uncertain, but I feel like he also has a bit of that, like, oh, no, like, am I going to be able to call on my powers when I need them in a a snap um, moment a little bit? Um, Just in terms of, like, turning into a fish, basically. (laughs) Because the moment pretty early on where they're both like, "Uh uh-oh, we know how this is going to (laughs) end. I see giant tanks of water and there are monsters. So I'm almost positive we're going to end up in those. <laughs> yeah. The way the scene goes is just uh, they end up being put on display inside of the giant tanks and Coach Hedge uh, saves them. There's one more thing I wanted to say about this Atlanta scene, which was how fast Percy just like immediately starts trying to talk his way out of the situation. I think like he meets a... Uh, for four C's for Forkus. What was his name? Forky's Forkus. Forkus. <laughs> he meets Forky from Toy Story Four. Um, but he he immediately reads him and starts going like, Well, everybody talks about you. You know, he he just like immediately starts lying like <laughs> to try and get on his, his good side. Which Frank I love watching Percy and Frank with each other because it's like Frank is always willing to just go along with what Percy's doing but he's not as good at it like he's pretty bad at it (laughs) and so i just i enjoy whenever percy and frank are together because hazel is better at keeping up with percy when percy like starts doing one of his bits Mm -hmm. she's pretty quick to catch on and frank like will catch on but he doesn't know how to play the game yet and so i like having frank around the same Mm -hmm. exact thing happens when they meet um the chrysler building later on Mm. so next we got annabeth going off and we learned one cute piece of information that I enjoy, which is that when Percy was missing, she went to visit Sally every week. Yeah. And 
There are a few details also in this scene that I picked up on. Um, when Athena started glitching and stopped like having as much power because of her Roman aspect coming in, Annabeth's invisibility cap stopped working. And then the other thing that just made me a little sad was that she and Percy don't have gray streaks in their hair anymore. This has never made sense to me because they're like stress streaks and their lives have not gotten any less stressful. <laughs> If you get gray streaks in your hair from stress, you can lose them by becoming less stressed. But (laughs) they've been just as stressed, so... (laughs) They should still have the gray streaks, and that's why I will always draw Percy with his gray streaks. Is this also the scene where um, Annabeth is sitting in her room thinking all these thoughts and then Frank comes in? It might be. I know it's before they get to Charleston, which is the next scene. Mm. I don't have anything to say about that moment other than like I think it's very cute that he trusts Annabeth enough to go and talk to her about that and knows that she won't make fun of him and he also has that one line about Percy where he says uh he's a really good guy I would follow him anywhere which is just like so cute I I the love that the son of Neptune trio have for each other it's so rarely seen after son of Neptune but (laughs) when it shows up I'm like oh there it is So then they stop in Charleston to see a ghost who turns out to be Aphrodite. We learn a little more from Aphrodite about how the Roman demigods sided with the Confederates in the Civil War. Because that was something that, like, was just kind of brought up as an example of times the Greeks and Roman Roman demigods had fought in the past. And I'm presuming at some point people were like, hey, Rick, you do understand that that means one of them sat on the side of slavery, right? And he kind of deals with it a little bit in this scene, which I appreciate. Although, I mean, I don't know. There's a few times in this book that characters call out time. Like, like for example, um, Hazel calling out like, wait, you what? No, 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 no. We do not support Confederates. I imagined that this choice, he wanted to show, I feel like this book, there's a lot of stuff about how sort of dangerous and corrupt Rome still is even in new Rome because we you know we we learned that like if they catch Annabeth they're going to execute her when Annabeth show, when uh, Reyna shows up later in this scene mm-hmm. and it's like you're gonna what it's very Roman we are 16 year olds <laughs> <laughs> and so I, I feel like that's a lot of this book and especially these chapters is getting like a new look at the way that like Rome is run mm. still and it might be separate from like the way that the Roman demigods think of themselves and that like a lot of them are, but that the state of Rome is still Rome. Like it's still, new Rome is still Rome. Yeah. Is I think what we're learning here. Yeah. And again, they're bringing a lot more, I think as I was sort of talking about before, they're bringing a lot more of the realities of like the Roman mentality and the Roman society into this book, including like acknowledging the fact that Rome's economy relied heavily on slavery, similar to the South. And really just bringing that home with the fact that, like, we, we emphasize here that the South thought of itself as the, a new Rome mm-hmm. in the same way that we talked about last time with all of these different cultures over the years thinking of themselves as the new Rome. Yeah. And it just kind of answered the question of, like, pre, you know, Manifest Destiny, where was New Rome? You know, we didn't, California wasn't a territory. I don't think California was officially a state until, like, the late 1800s, right? So. Yeah, it was probably like, somewhere in the South for a while. Yeah. But since we're speaking of when the Romans actually show up in this scene, I do want to talk about the conversation that Reyna and Annabeth have at this time. I feel like Reyna shows up and is like really angry. Like mm-hmm. she's super angry when she sees Annabeth again. Obviously they've they've hurt her camp, but also Annabeth in her eyes has threatened 
her leadership and is letting Gaia tear them apart. And, like, she likes Annabeth so much. She, like, immediately saw herself in Annabeth and was really excited to get to know Annabeth. And I, I don't know, I, hmm. I do think that Reyna kind of, in my head, I was, I was about to say, I don't know if she does that a lot, but then I was like, that's kind of how she treated Percy. As soon as she felt like she could trust him, like, she invested in him a lot. And yeah. so she might just be the kind of person who puts a lot of herself into other people once she thinks she can trust them and then, like, feels like she gets burned a lot. But eventually, Annabeth is able to talk her into letting her go. There's a great moment that I totally forgot happened where Annabeth realizes she's in trouble and all she does is toss her knife, the knife that she's had since she was seven that she would never part with, into the water. And Percy's just immediately like, she's in trouble. Uh Uh-huh. How could you forget that happened when Burge made such iconic art of it back in 2000? <laughs> Whatever, 13. <laughs> I wasn't part of the How could you forget? <laughs> so uh, we are officially on our way to Rome at this point. Yeah, they go to Fort Sumter and pick up like a bronze disc or something that literally never comes up again. I Well, it's also to pick up like Leo. Oh, right. And Jason. Who's like probably been knocked out again. I don't remember. <laughs> and they're sailing. And there's a sea monster. And Frank, Hazel, and Leo end up defeating the sea monster and getting dragged into a camp half-blood, but for mer people. It was interesting. I and again, I it brought it I think it brings to mind this idea of like the alternate realities and doppelgangers. Where there's just like times mm. it can there's so much in this world where like it doesn't have to be the chosen one, you know? And I think this was another good reminder of that. It's like, what if it was the fish version of Percy Jackson? Like, what if it was the mermaid Percy Jackson? The AU. <laughs> Honestly, I feel like also this scene drives a lot of Percy's angst weirdly after this, because he's just like, with the mer people didn't want to meet me? Yeah, I feel like this and then immediately followed by the Hercules scene is like Percy slowly realizing that he's not the main character and that like the fun stuff isn't going to follow him anymore. <laughs> Which I feel like is weird to see, like, to see Percy go from not wanting any part in the story to then feeling uncomfortable when it's not about him. And when he sees the narrative, like, reworking itself around mainly Jason and Leo. Like, sort of paper, but mainly Jason and Leo. And I, the way I'm, like, explaining this in my head is that on a metal level, we're, we've talked about how much Percy wants control and, like, the power to shift things to make sure that he and the people he cares about are safe and if the story isn't about him anymore he will lose that power like once they all become side characters who aren't central to any of this like what's protecting them anymore and i think you can also make that about the actual in-world plot like if the fates and the gods aren't concerning themselves with him anymore you know like being a a pawn for gaia was all that kept him alive in the last book and now he's surrounded by other chosen ones like you said not just like potential chosen ones like in the last series but actual chosen ones and when everyone around you is chosen and now the gods are favoring these new kids and they don't want anything to do with you like how essential can you be this is the thing though because there's a period of that and then it feels like another piece of like it feels like he has to learn all over again that like he's not like he has to yield yeah which part of me was like we've already learned this lesson why do we need to learn it again but the point you brought up with the amnesia thing, I wonder if maybe that is the reason. That, like, he has to relearn some things, I guess. Like, we hit the reset button a little too hard. I don't know. 
I feel like what he learned in The Last Olympian originally about yielding was that he couldn't always be the hero by acting and that he needed to yeah. give up control and take a step back sometimes and trust in Annabeth and in Luke's intentions. And that part, like that last part, I think did stick with him. But the rest of it, I don't know, I feel like we might be seeing that lesson slipping. Like, I think he was able to do it at the end of The Last Olympian, but the way he acts in this book specifically, you know, like, I, and uh, maybe it's not it's so much that he was reset by Juno and is relearning things. Like, maybe it's uh, more of, like, the realization that I talked about last time, that he's realizing how little has changed despite everything that happened in the last series. And so that's making him question or double back on, like, basically anything that he learned in the last series, because in his mind, it's like, what was the point of it? So, like, maybe that's the journey that we're seeing him go on, and that's why we're having this backward character development, I guess. And then their next encounter is, to me, one of the most interesting, if not the most interesting in this book. Because now we're in Piper's head, and we come across, we come up to the Straits of Gibraltar. So we've already made it pretty much all the way across the Atlantic, and we're about to enter the Mediterranean where there's this thing called the Pillars of Hercules, which are a thing in mythology where, like, Hercules, like, put up these two pillars on either side of, um, like, on one side on Spain and the other side in Africa to, like, mark the edge of the known world. This scene is crazy because we get to meet Hercules. And he's just, like, a, a guy. He's just, like, some guy. <laughs> he's, like, the most normal. And then, like, slowly they start to realize he's not that normal. I was curious how his, he, like, compared to the version of Hercules we saw in Titan's Curse. Because I feel like in Titan's Curse, this dude was way more jacked. <laughs> right? Like, am I wrong? He gave off more, like, jock vibes. <laughs> like, a li- like, some more high school bully vibes. Here he seems very chill. Until he isn't. Yeah, But I did like uh, the description that Piper gives of him, where she says that there is sadness and darkness in his eyes, Yeah, which I liked. I I don't know. I was going back and forth throughout this scene on whether I thought that Hercules represented Jason or Percy more. Interesting, because what I wrote down here was that I felt like Hercules reminded me of Percy, like the way he was acting right? and talking. Doesn't he just remind you of Percy a little bit? <laughs> But someone in, I'm pretty sure The Lost Hero, says that Jason has a sadness in his eyes all the time. And so this description of, like, Jason and Hercules bonding over the fact that they're brothers and both having that sadness, I liked that. And I wondered if Thalia had it too. But just the description in general just feels much more Percy. Especially there was one line where he was talking about how much pressure he was under. Mm, I, that was literally the line I wrote down. <laughs> yep, and considering, like, Percy's whole deal in this book, he, he's specifically talking about being Zeus's son or Jupiter's son. I forget who we're talking about at this point. But he says it's a lot of pressure. Enough is never enough. Eventually it can make a guy snap. Yeah, it just felt very Percy to me, considering the journey that Percy's going through in this book, which is fun because uh, Percy tries so hard... Uh, not to be like Hercules. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's interesting, too, because I think Hercules, he's immortal. Because in mythology, he, he chose the deal that Percy did not, which was that the gods offered to make him immortal, basically, for services rendered. And he picked it. But he's 
stuck. He, he's not even stuck in stasis in, you know, the moving of the West. He's stuck in the Old West, which I thought was really interesting. Like, he's yeah. stuck on the Straits of Gibraltar. He's stuck. He can't move past. He can't move on in a way that, like, even a lot of the monsters have been able to. Then Jason, our poor concussed boy, <laughs> forgets mentioning hair is a bad idea around um, Hercules. There's a peculiar thing where I feel like Hercules really puts a lot of the blame of his life onto Hera. It's kind of ambiguous because he he does have to do his initial labors because he murders his wife and children. But there is some ambiguity in the myth as to like if he does it and then if it's because of like God-given madness or not, basically. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that, again, it's sort of this idea of like there's two different versions. There's two different Herculeses. There's the one Hera cursed, you know, in a fit of insanity to murder his wife and kids. Then Hera forced him to atone by by doing all of his labors. And then there's the other version where, you know, Hera isn't just fucking with him the whole time. Like, he did actually do something evil and now has to atone. And I feel like this scene, this, this coupling of scenes really plays with this idea of, like, do you know this man? Like, do you know who this person is? Do you know which version of Hercules we're talking about? Because the way he, when, when, as soon as Jason mentions Hera, the way he kind of flips on them without remorse uh, or even regret and forces them to do an impossible task just like he did really is striking to me. Yeah, this is part of a theme that's starting to show up in just the stories that we're talking about, which is how many of the encounters that they have in this story are just people who see themselves as or have actually been betrayed by or ruined by in some way by the gods. Mm. Especially Hera comes up a couple times. But, <laughs> but with like done a lot of bad things. Using that version of the Echo and Narcissus story where it's like it was a punishment that uh, Narcissus is over there like that. Mm. And then it seems like we're going with the Hera punished uh, Hercules story. And like later on we'll get, you know, the, the dolphin crew and Arachne and like it's just those are going to start building up throughout this book. A lot of the monsters in all of the books, just that's their origin story, but it's not one that we focus on as much mm-hmm. as we're focusing on it in this book, where it seems like every monster that shows up has some... I'm sure the shrimp even had some kind of backstory uh. <laughs> that if it, if it could have talked, it would have been like, can you believe what Zeus did to me? <laughs> but yeah, that specifically, that will, sh- that will sort of culminate in a scene uh, at the end of the book that we'll talk about. There's also an interesting piece of this exchange, too, where after Hercules turns on them and kind of gives them an impossible task, Jason's trying to placate him, and he's like, come on, we're both sons of Zeus. I I get, I understand, like, what you're going through. And Hercules basically shuts him down and is like, no, you don't. You have no idea. The only person who maybe understands me is Dionysus. I just thought that instant shutdown was so interesting of, like, no, Mm -hmm. absolutely not. So anyway, he assigns um, Piper and Jason a theoretically impossible task of finding a river god and breaking off his other horn, which Hercules had broken off his original horn. This idea that they're also both both tethered to this island together it comes up a bit too. Yeah, as punishment for each other. Yeah. There are times when there's definitely gray areas with the monster encounters. And there's a lot of gray areas in terms of, like, you know, the demigods and on the side of Kronos, for example, and everything else. But I found this scene to be particularly interesting because the the narrative calls out both Echolus and Hercules, like, 
equally for not just being in the wrong in some aspects of what of their actions but actually for avoiding all of the blame for their actions because both of them kind of have this narrative of like no I had no choice I I had to do what I did even the bad things because I was I had Hera making me do it or I had some something else making me do it there's no person in the right here there's no person who's even more right here they're both just kind of bitter and avoiding responsibility and both have been wronged but also done wrongs and they're just stuck together forever Mm. so um anyway they they do succeed in getting the horn piper pulls a percy cuts it off and they flee the island after bringing it to hercules after he admits them passing through also, another thing I noticed, I thought it was interesting that Hercules, so again, they're, they're, they're leaving. Hercules is, like, chucking coconuts at them. And I was sitting here like, this feels almost reminiscent of Polyphemus in the Odyssey. And in Sea of Monsters. And that was Percy leaving behind a, a child of Poseidon and Jason leaving behind a child of Zeus. So we get back to the ship and shift back into Percy's perspective where he has a, another dream. Mm-hmm. Something I found really interesting about this book is that Every POV character has a different avenue for seeing the future. Percy has dreams. No one else has dreams. It's just Percy. And then um, Piper has Catoptrus, her dagger. Um, Annabeth has a prophecy for the Mark of Athena. And Leo... A fortune cookie. <laughs> has a fortune cookie. <laughs> yeah, so Percy has this dream. He gets his first sort of glimpse at uh, Arachne. There's this one line that one of the twins has where he says that Annabeth is preferred as the blood sacrifice. And he says, and the boy, the son of Poseidon, you can see why those two would be most suited for the task. Which stuck out to me because it suggested to me that there is more to this blood sacrifice than just being a blood sacrifice. Like Mm. being most suited to the task makes it sound like there's more that's expected of them. Mm. So... I guess we'll revisit that when we find out more. We'll revisit that. (laughs) The plan. This is the point at which I started to think a lot about how I felt this book paralleled a lot of Battle of the Labyrinth. The Mark of Athena quest, like, reminds me of the quest for Pan. Mm-hmm. Because it's just this doomed, like, mission you have to undertake to, like, restore honor, restore, you know, a legacy, you know, bring back, you know, something from the past that everybody dies on. <laughs> that ultimately leads to this, like, ancient monster and is a trap, so... Well, Percy can't finish his dream anyway because they get rammed by another ship. My only note on this is I just want a shot-for-shot remake here of the first scene of Black Sails. Well, listen, it's actually more similar to a scene at the end of Black Sails, but you wouldn't know that. Fair enough, fair enough. (laughs) I loved this scene. Maybe it's just me loving pirates, but I loved this scene. (laughs) No, it's a good one. There's a lot here, like, under the surface, just with his crew and their connection to mythology, the fact that they're like, again, it's like the old world versus the new, right? Like how, how, why is he here and not elsewhere? Like, why is this man not in the sea of monsters? Why is this man like in the Mediterranean? I wondered if that was because no one's telling his story. Yeah. I mean, there are people that we meet who have kind of faded from memory. Yeah. Although, and yet Hercules you know, is arguably one of the most famous demigods ever. Yeah, and, he's and some here of them are staying behind. But I wonder if maybe Hercules has different aspects. Maybe this is just one aspect of Hercules. Yeah, if it does have to do with the fact that no one's telling his story, I thought it was interesting that that's the whole reason that he's a pirate. 
is that no one was talking about him. Like, ever, people refused to tell his story, so he was like, piracy, like, relies on storytelling. That's all that it's about. But he says that he's heard Percy's story. And so it was funny seeing this one guy who's like, his whole thing is that, like, nobody tells my story. And then standing up to Percy, who he's like, I know who you are. Which I know is partially because it seems like he's working with Gaia and her forces. But it's just fun that his story has spread to that point. This scene is interesting as well because Percy is like, I got this sword fighting wise. And then Mm -hmm. he does not. There's this point where he's fighting and he says, Many of Percy's powers had gotten stronger over the years, but now, too late, Percy realized that swordplay wasn't one of them. He was rusty, at least against an adversary like Chrysior. Chrysior. <laughs> they battled back and forth, thrusting and parrying. Without meaning to, Percy heard the voice of Luke Castellan, his first sword-fighting mentor at Camp Half-Blood, throwing out suggestions, but it didn't help. To me... You know, in my head, I've, I've always imagined that Percy's sword fighting skills got better over the years, which I'm sure they they did at least a little bit. But I hadn't considered that, like, Luke was Percy's best sword fighting mentor. And mm-hmm. so his skills would only ever be as good as what Luke taught him. Because mm. we know that he never got better than Luke. Because he was still losing <laughs> to Kronos. <laughs> yeah. To the same tricks because he was, he was using Luke's sword fighting skills. And so... Percy never actually got better than what Luke taught him, but he was Luke's best student. And so I having this moment where it's like Percy realizing that he never actually kept learning because he's just been better than everyone (laughs) since he was 12. (laughs) Yeah. And also the fact that Luke, when he comes up, this is like one of maybe three times that Luke's name comes up in this book. And it's never as a villain that Luke's name pops up. Luke is only referred to as, here, it's his sword fighting mentor. There's just, there's been a shift in the way that we're talking about Luke at this point that I enjoy. (laughs) There's also a bit of a shift because I don't know if you clocked this or not, but he also talks about the blessing of Achilles and not the curse. Oh, does he? Yeah, he calls it the blessing. It is really interesting that Percy, you're dead to me, Jackson, is now thinking of Luke like, oh, my teacher. Right, and then he's like hearing his voice in his head, like throw, like giving him suggestions. Like that's, I, that's crazy. That's <laughs> yeah, but he, this is, I think, one of Percy's big, every, like I mentioned, like every character kind of has a moment where they're just like, I'm not doing the thing I should be good at well. And this is like, Perse- and the, the, the aftermath of this battle, I think, is also kind of Percy's moment. Yeah, that's where he really starts introspecting. But before we get to that, Percy does defeat the Dolphin Man. He does, with trickery. With trickery, and by remembering the myth and piecing everything together. Which, that's something that becomes pretty rare for him. Because I think the books start to fall into the, like, Percy doesn't know anything about myths trap. Mm. (laughs) Which, like, it's not true. (laughs) But he used to do it all the time. (laughs) In, like, Lightning Thief, Sea of Monsters era. He would remember the myth and start piecing together how best to defeat the monsters that he was facing. (laughs) And so I liked returning to that and letting Percy do that again. Yeah. So Percy recognizes the myth that these guys are from, which is the one where Dionysus turns the guys into dolphins, which has been referenced uh, several times (laughs) in these books. And basically they just pretend that their captain is Dionysus to scare the, the crew. The other thing I was going to say about this scene, but I already kind of said, 
was that I I like the way that Frank plays off of Percy in this scene. Yeah. I mean, they all play off of Percy because he's like putting on a show here. And it's like, look, the girls, they've lost their mind. And Hazel and Piper are like, oh God, we've lost our minds. Yeah. But um, I, I like that he, he the, the way that he pieces together what he's about to do is at first by looking at Frank. And yeah. it's like, thank God that Frank is here. Yeah. No, that plan would not have worked without Frank. Because he knows that that Frank will go along with him and knows how to play off of him. Mm. Because that's what the Son of Neptune trio kind of do together a lot is like play off of each other's improvisation, especially when they're with Percy. Because that's mm. it's like they're used to they're used to him, <laughs> and so he knows that he can go for this plan and that Frank will be a part of it. Yeah. So they defeat the dolphins mm-hmm. and offer up their ship as. A sacrifice to Dionysus, and Percy gives up six million dollars, which d- were on that ship. Uh, yeah. I would never. That's like shocking to me. I would never do that. <laughs> yeah, that's that's like such a big sacrifice, especially to like Dionysus or Bacchus. I was like, Percy, just like take a million. He won't miss. He won't miss it. I, I feel like Percy's introspection here at the end of this scene is really valuable for some of the reasons that we've already mentioned, but also I think it's the fact that Percy is realizing here how little power he has and that he only he only seems to see his own limits instead of like how much he actually is doing for people. Yeah. And the fact that he wants to protect his friends and family and like he, he just wants the power to be able to do that and he wants to be stronger. That's the, his his wording is that he wants to be stronger. Which I didn't remember this when I said that that was why he wanted to feel powerful back way back when, <laughs> but <laughs> confirmation. And he also thinks of it about how he worries that if he gives up even like an ounce of his responsibility that other people will get hurt because he didn't take charge. And so that's where he starts to feel that weight and feel like he's suffocating because there's so much pressure on him, mm-hmm. um, which ties back to the stuff that Hercules said. Mm-hmm. I think it's important to have this so close to the Hercules chapters. Mm. Just to, like, hammer home that he's the real Hercules parallel here. Mm. Right. So after this, we have Percy's dream, which you were about to talk about. (laughs) I have one note on this dream, which is the dream ends with Percy looking down and watching himself crumbling to dust like a monster. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. I wrote that one down, too. It's partially foreshadowing for the fact that he's going to fall into Tartarus. He's going to end up in Tartarus at the end of the book. But, like, the traits, the things that he's analyzing about himself in this moment before he falls asleep are the things that are going to make him start feeling monstrous in a second. And so it's also foreshadowing for that. So then they get to from... I just wrote down to Phoebe. What do you recognize? What do I recognize? I don't know. I... So... For those who don't know, um, Phoebe studied abroad in Rome. I've been to Rome well, one time uh, for like a couple days, so I'm not super familiar with the exact layout of Rome. But Phoebe, you're pretty familiar with Rome. I'm very familiar with Rome. And this description of Rome that we get as they're flying in is like exactly what my thesis was about in college, <laughs> <laughs> which is that like feeling that Rome, I described it as Rome feeling like it's confused. Because you have these, like, old buildings next to these modern, the modern architecture and, like, the Catholicism in every piazza right next to ruins, right next to a modern building. Like, it just feels like it doesn't know what it is. And that's kind of what's described as they're flying over Rome. Although here, I think it's described as, like, it wants to be the entire world at once. 
which I also liked that interpretation that it was just Rome trying to be everything all at once because it wants to be the entire world. Yeah. I think it says that specifically about the like the variation of different trees that are there that shouldn't all be in the same spot, but they are. It's definitely accurate in that way. There are definitely some things that he says here that are, are very confusing to me. <laughs> <laughs> They're eating pizza. <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> I was so confused by this. I always think of this moment where they're sitting there eating pizza because in my head I was like, oh yeah, Percy like eats pizza and says that it's bad and I can't believe he doesn't like the Roman pizza. He probably ate it in a touristy area because the pizza in Rome is good. It's right next to Naples. Like, of course the pizza's good. But then rereading it, I realized that the reason that I don't like this scene is because Annabeth makes the bold claim that people don't eat pizza in Rome and that only tourists eat pizza. And I was like, what? <laughs> where did she hear this? They have this whole interaction with the waiter where he's like, unbelievable that you're trying to eat in my restaurant at 12 p.m. And I was like, why wouldn't they? That's a normal time to eat. <laughs> I just don't get it. <laughs> Especially because he comes out with a square of pizza. So they clearly, the only places you can get square pizza in Rome are in tourist destinations or in takeaway pizza spots. That's where you go You go up to the counter and you say, I want a pizza, and then they take it and they cut it in half and they fold it like a sandwich and you walk away with it. <laughs> and the pizza's really good in a lot of them. So I was like, I don't know where Rick ate. I, I'm pretty sure he just got like, he went, to, he went to visit Rome and got some tourist pizza and was like, the pizza in Rome is terrible. I can't <laughs> believe they gave me this bad pizza. They must not eat pizza in Rome. Anyway, I just it's just an insane statement to make to be like, pizza's only for tourists. I was like, what are you talking about? <laughs> so we meet Rhea Silvia and Tiberinus, who are the... Um, Rhea Silvia is the mother of Romulus and Remus. Tiberinus is the god of the Tiber River. Um, but they look like Audrey Hepburn and Gregory Peck. They do say Rhea Silvia and Tiberinus, when Percy asks, like, hey, why do you look like an American movie? They do say something kind of interesting that mm -hmm. I feel like it's sort of a throwaway line, but I want to come back to, like... Yep, I know exactly what line you're about to say. <laughs> where they basically say, like, well, Rome affected the world, but the world also affects Rome, which means that, like, all of the stuff going on and, like, the development of the West, like, is still happening in Rome itself. Which makes sense, because obviously Rome is an ever-growing, ever-changing, still-thriving metropolis. But it, it's interesting to me because I feel like for a while now they've portrayed the old world as sort of fixed and like done and like that's that's that and now we're here and it's not like the mythological components aren't changing there anymore because they're they're adapting and changing to fit their new home. And then Annabeth gives her letter of recommendation. And the map that they tried so hard <laughs> to get. And the map. Which didn't help them at all. <laughs> oh my god. For context, by the way, when I first read The Mark of Athena, I texted Phoebe so angrily because I was like, Phoebe, where's the map? And she was like, what are you talking about? And I was like, you know how they go through all of that pain at Fort Sumter to get this map and then never use it? And she was like, oh my god, you're right. <laughs> then I had the same conversation with Fran like a couple weeks ago where I was like, Fran, do you remember the map? And Fran was like, no, I don't remember the map. What are you talking about? Anyway, so, um, and then Annabeth goes off to begin her real quest for the Mark of Athena. Yeah, and I want to talk about this myth Mithras stuff. Yeah, <laughs> so she's told to find the altar of a foreign god, which immediately made me like, uh-huh. And she sort of ends up in this tunnel system 
And this is where Annabeth has a bit of her like uncertainty because she's kind of said she's kind of going through this alone, really thinking about the fact that like she doesn't have any magic with her, like not even her invisibility cap. And she doesn't have any special crazy powers like any of the rest of the seven. It's just her and her brain. And that's it. I think we've talked a lot about how each of these characters is kind of a chosen one in their own way. And this is Annabeth's chosen one moment. This is the thing that makes her a chosen one in this series. And yet at the same time, it's not for any of the reasons. It doesn't give her the same cachet. It doesn't give her any of the same things that everyone else's does. So (laughs) she ends up in this place where there's all these mosaics that are depicting all of these ritual things. And it is a Mithraeum which is where people would worship Mithras. Phoebe, what do you want to talk about? What, what I want to talk about is um, this felt so random to include. <laughs> and so I was like, there has got to be a reason. And so the reason I settled on was the fact that it takes, there are seven levels of initiation for this uh, cult. Mm-hmm. And that there are seven symbols in the ground. And so I, I looked them up to see what they were because Annabeth can only see a couple of them. But I was like, I'm sure there are more if I look them up. And there were more when you look them up. And I was like, I'm going to make this about the seven. Because it, that feels very specific that he chose one that has seven things that you have to go through. Mm. And uh, so my thought was that he was included because the seven levels each represented a member of the seven. Because there are levels for Venus, Mars, Jupiter. And so I was like, well, those three are covered. <laughs> oh, yeah. Mithras is, she's an astrology girly. Yeah. So they each have like planets and gods that they're associated with. But I didn't get, I, I, that was the thought. And then I didn't have time to keep thinking it. Interesting. So as I've talked about a bit before now, there are a lot of really interesting mystery cults in the Greco-Roman world. And the cult of Mithras is really a Roman one. It's, it doesn't really appear in the Greek world. And what it actually is, is it's the worship of Mithras, who is a, I believe, Persian or Iranian? Indo- he's like an Indo-Iranian god that we don't know exactly when it, how it started, but it became extremely popular, specifically among Ro- the Ro- Roman soldiers and merchants and people traveling around a lot. Uh, there, there are certain people who think it is maybe possibly a precursor to something like the Freemasons, but it's it's really not. It's just like the, the, the fact that there's like initiation and there was all of these different, um, what we call Mithraeum, so it's a place where you worship Mithras, scattered all across the Roman world. And they all seem to have very similar um, like iconography, decorations, things, rituals happening, as opposed to a lot of the other mystery cults that were not widespread, that were very like location-based and focused. Um, that also had like a bit of a more, a more diversity in terms of like how they practiced their religions. The way I kind of connected it, well, there's, there's a few different reasons I think this is here. There's a cynical reason, and then there's the like analysis reason. The cynical reason is that they're, What's interesting about the cult of Mithras, um, in terms of what we know about it, is almost all of the mystery cults we know of um, in the classical world, we have a lot of evidence in the literature about it, and very little evidence in the archaeology. The cult of Mithras is actually the opposite. We have a lot of archaeological evidence of Mithras scattered all across the Roman Empire, and very little written about what they actually did, or what it was all for, or like what they believed. Which is why this scene is really funny, because, you know, it's not like 
it, it's not it, Rick is basically doing a bit where we don't really know what any of the purposes of these rituals were like we have guesses and we don't really know the full extent of the mysteries so we're just gonna basically take an incomplete picture and paste it on the wall because this is the thing right like we can only really reconstruct the Mithras story through like mosaics and depictions of it in art but we have no, no one wrote it down. So we don't know what it's supposed to be. We have no idea what this dude's deal is. We just see images of it and like kind of have to figure it out, which is sort of what Annabeth is doing in this scene. Yeah. Because we've lost the institutional memory, the cultural context of what we're looking at when we look at these phrases, we've lost his story. We can only guess. I think that really speaks to what memory means not just like on an individual level which is kind of how we've been talking about it um, up until this point but also on an institutional level and I think it really shows how identity is the product of selective memory and brings that all kind of full circle yeah so we make it past uh, a series of trials I don't think we really need to list out all of the trials Mm -hmm. she smarts her way through all of them that's Mm -hmm. kind of the point of them is that you're supposed to smart your way out until she makes it to the room where Arachne is. And Arachne says to her, I have seen you in my dreams. She also says that she like specifically chose Annabeth to be the one who made it through, which was interesting. But this is also an example of what we talked about in the Lost Hero episode with like the story that's told not necessarily being the story that the person it happened to believes. Because Arachne says that she didn't lose the contest with Athena. She says Mm. that she was the better weaver and that Athena, like, basically rewrote the story after we cursed her and rewrote the story. Which I buy. That makes sense. Trying to bring Athena's wrath down on this podcast again. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. But before we can get this full scene, we do jump back to Leo, Frank, and Hazel, who are currently exploring the uh, Pantheon. Yeah. They're trying to find, um, what are they doing? Oh, they're trying to find the giant slayer. Yeah. And instead they end up finding like an old workshop, basically. Yeah. They used to belong to Archimedes. Yeah. Which I took no notes on this because I was like, that's cool. (laughs) (laughs) It's a little bit random. I don't really have many thoughts on Archimedes. I will say it is interesting. Again, like this is where a lot of the Battle of the Labyrinth stuff comes in. Because, you mm-hmm. know, they kind of are equating him. There's a line where it's like, oh, Archimedes was just as brilliant as Zadalus, except more, actually even more brilliant. And, you know, they find this, like, lost book of, like, his spheres and all of this stuff. And it, it's very reminiscent of all of this knowledge that Daedalus has. And, like, Leo gets his chance to kind of, like, rediscover that from his hero. Yeah. I don't really have much more to say about Archimedes. Sorry, I'm not a mathematician. No, well, this is where we, I mean, we have a little bit of this with Annabeth, but we also get it here. And we'll also get it, I think, in a Percy chapter a little bit later on where people start to suggest that the labyrinth is back. Yeah. And this is a little bit of a clue. Yeah. And so it makes sense that we're getting these Battle of the Labyrinth references because we keep going down underground and being like, this sure feels like the labyrinth. Mm. And then we switch gears again, and we got another quest. This again, we're we're finally we're changing, we're we're yeah. we're, we're rotating. And this uh, is this is one of my favorites. I love this. Then we get the beginning of the dark tone shift. Oh, you see, this is the beginning of the the darker tone shift. Okay. <laughs> I will say this is where we get Jason like expressing his like, oh no, I'm useless angst. But Jason's is funny because his is like, oh man, I keep getting knocked out. 
<laughs> and not able to do anything. I think he's going to do it again in this next scene. <laughs> <laughs> so they... Why do they go down here again? Piper saw it in her vision. Oh, right. Piper saw it in her vision such that they go down and they do it. <laughs> yeah. And this is, again, where I appreciate a little, a small detail where it's like the steps don't go all the way down. I was like, this is true. Whenever you see a building where the steps don't go all the way down, it is probably a fountain. But it's empty at this point, And we find out that it's because uh, the nymphs who were invited here long, long ago have been left behind and the aqueducts have been redirected, so what was once a beautiful fountain is now empty. It's a true, like, horror moment, honestly. Like, they kind of just, again, lock all the exits, take away all their chances, and say, oh, well, you've wandered in here, there's no water here anymore, so we're gonna steal and drink up instead the Piper's youth and beauty, the power Mm. of the sky and Zeus from Jason, because they're also apparently the nymphs that raise Zeus, and on then take... Percy, the water from Percy. For me, what I found really interesting too is so they they begin to flood the Nymphaeum with evil water. And (laughs) Percy, I can control the rivers of the underworld Jackson, can't control this water. Yeah. It like completely freaks him out. Yeah. And and part of me wondered if this was almost a self-fulfilling prophecy where, because again, I feel like part of the reason why he was able to control the rivers of the underworld is because in his brain he was like, why wouldn't I be? Yeah. Even though at the same time, he was also like, this shouldn't work. This isn't like water, water. And yet here, he has trouble with something that's probably much closer to water than the rivers of the underworld. Yeah. And Percy does start to drown. So does Jason. He dies again. <laughs> Percy at least comes out of it conscious. Jason doesn't. Yeah. My note here was just, Jason, get up. <laughs> <laughs> The, the way that they get out of this, Piper remembers a story, like an old Cherokee story, that her dad once told her about a man who sacrifices a dog and basically in return is able to protect his family from a flood. And it's the equivalent of the flood story that's in all, all cultures. <laughs> and so she pulls from that and figures what we need is a sacrifice. So the way that they do this is Piper takes the cornucopia that she got from the bull guy and she says that they all need to think of clean water, like a a storm of water, don't hold anything back, picture all of your power, all of your strength leaving you is what she suggests. And when Percy says that's not hard, she says, but force it out, offer up everything like, like you're already dead and your only goal is to help the nymphs. It's got to be a gift, a sacrifice. And... Uh, they all go quiet, and Jason says, let's do it again together. Um, and that's basically how they do it, is that they willingly give up all of themselves to the water, and mm. they're able to summon clean water. And I just want us to hold on to this chapter. It's a good scene. It's a good scene. I like when Percy's scared. <laughs> <laughs> and I like that Piper gets to see him scared because I know she has a certain like when she, when she talks about Percy I think earlier in the book she's like she expected him to be very intense and like larger than he seems like she she's actually not that impressed with him when she meets him just she was she was expecting to be very impressed from the way that Annabeth talks about him mm. and then she meets him and she's like this is just a guy and so I like that like that's just kind of the version of Percy that Piper seems to see a lot of the time 
Mm. And like she does have those moments where she's like she knows how per- how powerful Percy is. Like she saw it when she was out there and they and Percy and Jason were fighting. But her first impression of Percy was just this is a guy. Anyway, they they free the nymphs, which is nice. Then they they continue on and they find the giant's place, which is the Hypogeum, which is underneath the Colosseum, which is basically the staging area. Yeah. Where they will stage a complete destruction of the city of Rome. Which have been the stakes for this book the whole time. We just haven't talked about them. Yeah, just don't worry about it. That's fine. So I, this whole fight breaks out and everything. And finally, Mr. D, or Bacchus, shows up. But he basically, he, he sets it up so that he can sit there and just enjoy the show. And Percy's reaction, he says he feels as small and insignificant as a bug. And he also feels very angry. Very is in italics, so you know it's bad. <laughs> he says, fighting giants was one thing. Bacchus making it into a game was something else. Percy remembered what Luke Castellan had told him years ago when Percy had come back from his very first quest. Didn't you realize how useless it all is? All the heroics being pawns of the Olympians. Percy was almost the same age now as Luke had been then. He could understand how Luke became so spiteful. In the past five years, Percy had been a pawn too many times. The Olympians seemed to take turns using him for their schemes. Maybe the gods were better than the Titans or the Giants or Gaia, but that didn't make them good or wise. It didn't make Percy like this stupid arena battle. (laughs) Mm. It reminds me of, like, your point with the arena last time, how what it was trying to show Luke, and it feels like Percy is seeing what Luke was supposed to in this moment. It's exactly that. And it's... I, I, in my mind, this is the culmination of all of those moments that I was talking about with all of these encounters that all of them have been done wrong by the gods. And so it's like throwing all of those in your face over and over every time they have an encounter. It's because of something that the gods did to them. Hmm. And then at the end, we finally get Percy having this realization that we've been begging him to have for books and books because of the way that he's treated by Bacchus hmm. in that moment. And it's just, this is like one of the all-star moments of this entire book for me. Mm. I was finally getting Percy to like explicitly have this thought. And it all comes out of Percy feeling small and like a pawn. It's the pawn thing again. Mm. It just keeps coming back to that, that specific word. It's just so good. I'm so glad that this book is like, because we also have, I think the third reference to Luke is that like Annabeth just thinks of him at one point while she's Mm. thinking about her childhood like Luke in this book is never brought up as like the villain of the last series or like the he's it's usually when he comes up it's like well we all hate Luke we know we all hate Luke Mm. but and in this book it's like no we we are done with that so just the the series's perception of Luke has kind of shifted as Percy's perception of Luke has shifted Mm. I forgot that this happened so when I got to this I was like no way (laughs) (laughs) yeah and then we cut to Annabeth and I also found that Annabeth's scene with Arachne reminded me a bit of the fight with Antaeus because of the way um, Annabeth kind of is fighting while tangling up in all of these mm-hmm. webs and like kind of felt like the chains of the ceiling. So they're kind of like both going through their arena scene in a way. And also how Annabeth, I feel like, really Percy's Arachne. <laughs> she really does. She like compl- it, it. It's the same kind of trick that Percy would play. Mm-hmm. But it's also got its own like Annabeth flair to it and it's interesting because the what she really gets to with arachne with is this idea of like the immortal fame which i feel like is not something 
like they talk about it in the abstract a lot with the monsters i think when percy's trying to manipulate them where they're like oh yeah like you're gonna be totally appreciated for everything and everyone's gonna know who you are but it's never like for a reason it's just like them sweet talking versus for Mm -hmm. me what i found with annabeth was like what all the stuff she was saying to arachne wasn't it was true yeah where she was genuinely impressed with like the artwork and like everything, mm-hmm. I th- I feel like Annabeth and Arachne are very similar, and that Annabeth could see that, mm-hmm. and also saw how similar Arachne was to Athena, like that appeal to the fame and it being like something that felt real, like a realistic like thing to say, even if you weren't manipulating this person, and then also like the fact that Arachne like dreams of Annabeth, it sort of all serves to remind us that like Arachne did start off as a human. And I think it's, I fla- I like to flag when, you know, the monsters and the mortals kind of have some grayness between them, like what defines what. But I feel like here is where we really see why it's important to mark all of those things and why it's important to remember. Because I think it all feeds into what you were saying about how a lot of these monsters were just normal people done dirty by the gods mm-hmm. and how fine that line is. You know, when that's really something you don't have control over. Yeah. My favorite part of this scene, as we get to the end of it, is after Annabeth has won and Arachne is in her trap, she starts gloating and just like she could easily leave or it could even play into, you know, uh, Arachne has this moment where she's like, oh, you're going to call your friends about my artwork? Like you're still going to like keep that sort of promise to me, maybe? I'm like, she could leave and be like, yeah, I am, bye, and like leave Arachne in her trap. But instead what she does is she just stands there and basically rubs it in Arachne's face that nothing that's displayed on Mount Olympus is going to be Arachne's work. It's going to be the Athena Parthenos after Annabeth takes it from her and that it's going to unite the Roman and Greek camps and all of this will be because of Well, she's telling Arachne that it's going to be all thanks to Arachne because she knows that it'll get a rise out of her. But really what she's saying is it'll be all thanks to me because Mm. she has, she's just, she's done it. She's found the Athena Parthenos. And the the reason it's my favorite moment is because this is Annabeth's downfall. Mm, (laughs) This is the reason the entire ending happens is because Arachne gets so angry at her that she starts flailing around and starts breaking the room because it's already unstable. And so... The next scene ends up playing out all because Annabeth couldn't help herself, basically. Mm-hmm. And I know we, we we kind of closed the book on this a little bit, but it's so Odysseus of her. It's so Odysseus of her. <laughs> it's literally it's it's literally the scene that we actually already saw play out in yeah. Sea of Monsters with uh, Clarice doing the exact same thing. Yeah. It's just her her fatal flaw comes and gets the best of her. And we see that so rarely. They're always like, this is my fatal flaw. And then, like, nothing bad actually comes of it. And here, like, something extremely bad comes of it. Yeah. (laughs) Because what happens in this scene is the Argo 2 basically crashes through the ceiling and comes to save her. And uh, Arachne has told us that the the floor, it's right above an entrance to Tartarus. And that's what's cracking right now. So Annabeth has to get out of there immediately. Um, and so does the Athena Parthenos. And so, like, some people are working to lift up the Athena Parthenos toward the mm-hmm. ship, and Annabeth is injured. Oh, <laughs> I just realized we never mentioned that they saved Nico. 
Oh, yeah, they saved Nico. <laughs> and he told them that the doors of death are inside Tartarus because he went there. That's probably yeah. important. <laughs> Here's my thing. Rereading this book, I'm like, it is so obvious they have to go to Tartarus in this book. But I remember, like, when I first read it, it's it's just one of those game-changing things where you just don't even think it's on the table. Yeah. Like, it was so built up and so scary in The Lightning Thief, and that just kind of, like, continues on. So I was sitting there, and I was like, but there's so much, like, like at one point, Gaia literally says, like, enjoy your journey in Tartarus. Yeah, and you're like, metaphorically? <laughs> so I'm like, how did I not pick up on all this foreshadowing? And what I'm realizing also is Rick did did pull some sneaky shit here. Because yeah. everything is wrapped up and resolved. And he lets it sit like that for a few pages. He lets everything be resolved. He lets them have achieved all of their goals. He lets everything happen. They're all going to get away. They've all reunited. It's going to be fine. And then Arachne Balrog's Annabeth. Right. So it turns out Annabeth has part of the web still wrapped around her ankle and she didn't realize. And so she's still tied to Arachne, who is currently falling. Mm-hmm. She's, she starts being dragged toward the pit. Percy manages to grab her. And I, I love this moment where Hazel is the only one who realizes what's going on for a second. Mm-hmm. And she's yelling for help, but like no one's really responding fast enough or even hears her. Mm-hmm, because the statue's also falling, so they're all trying to fig- get that out of there. Yeah, I mean, basically what happens here is they, they um, Percy catches Annabeth, and then he realizes that there's no way for him to pull her up, and so decides that the best thing to do is to fall with her, mm-hmm. and to try to close the doors of death from the inside, since Nico at this point has told them that the doors of death will likely have to be closed from both sides. And so he yells up, this is what the plot of the next book is going to be. (laughs) Mm. We're going to find the doors down here and you're (laughs) going to find the doors up there. He makes Nico promise, which I've already talked about how big of a thing promise is in this series, where it's like, if you break one, it's over for you, but it's especially over for you in this series because it's part of the prophecy is that someone's going to have an oath to keep with a final breath. So Mm. I remember when this book came out, Every time anyone made a promise, because there's some big promises in this book. It was like, don't do that. But especially that one, this is the one that scared me the most at the time, was Percy making Nico promise to lead everyone to the doors of death and that they would see them there. So yeah, Percy, let's go. And they fall. Banana Twist moment. of the century. Cliffhanger of, of the millennia. <laughs> so do you have a bead for this book? I mean, it's got to be one of those Chinese finger traps, right? I think my bead for this book, I think it's the, like, that image of, like, the the dog with the skin pulled back with the bones. Mm, where it's like, I'm already dead. Because that, honestly, that describes Jason. It does, it kind of foreshadows the fall. Yeah, I like that. It is complicated for, for me to have to draw later on. <laughs> <laughs> for listening to uh, this episode of monster donut if you want to see uh, the cool art phoebe has drawn for this episode you can check out our instagram twitter at pjo pod or if you're feeling a fancy you can check out our tiktok as well which is also at pgo pod and if you feel so inclined you can um send us a tip on coffee or coffee uh, links are in our link tree on um, all of our sites and if you have any um thoughts analyses or questions you can email us at monsterjonutpodcast at gmail.com 
we are eventually planning to do a wrap-up episode like we did with the first series so if any questions pop into your mind that you want to send in please please do so um and also if you want to support us in any way non-monetarily it's always great to leave a rating on spotify itunes or wherever else you listen to your podcasts and um send us a message if you want our house of hades episode to be much longer than normal (laughs) <laughs> and we just won't edit it. <laughs> It'll yeah. be six hours long. <laughs> oh my god. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com.